Genesis chapter 9, verse 1 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand. They are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with life. It's life that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Verse 7. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that that is on the earth. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. The last time that we considered... The book of Genesis, we examine the first act of Noah when he finally, after a year and a few months of being on the ark, exited the ark with his family. The first act of this man after exiting the ark was to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Noah was acting in his priestly role, performing his priestly duty. Noah obeyed the commands of God and preserved clean animals on the ark. They would be offered up as a sacrifice when the time came for Noah and his family to exit the ark. And now, after what may have seemed like an eternity, Noah and his family have exited the ark. Noah once again has passed the test of God. Once again, his faith has proved to be genuine. And his first order of business was to offer to God that which God had commanded him to offer. This, as we talked about last time, was true religion. This was a religion that pleased God. Noah offered a sacrifice on behalf of himself, his family, 
and on behalf of the entire world. Therefore, Noah was not only a priest, but Noah was also a type of mediator. Noah stood before God on behalf of the entire world. Noah offered a sacrifice as priest for the entire world, and the entire world would reap the benefits of that sacrifice. God, the Bible says, smelled the aroma, the sweet aroma of the sacrifice of Noah, and it was it was pleasing to him. Why was the sacrifice pleasing to God? Why was the sacrifice a pleasing aroma to God? Because it is what it was what God had asked for. It was what God had required and Noah was obeying what God had commanded. Therefore, it was pleasing to God. Do you know that when you obey God, it is pleasing to God? The Bible says in Genesis chapter eight and verse twenty one. And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed, time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God accepted the sacrifice of Noah and God made a commitment. Now, here's the commitment, a commitment of preservation to the entire world. God made a commitment of preservation to the entire world, promising, covenanting that he would never again Strike down every living creature in the manner that he has done by way of flood. God would preserve the creation until the appointed time when he would judge the world, not by water, but by fire, as the book of Peter says. Think about this for a moment. Think about the commitment of God. Why would God want to preserve the world? Man was no less sinful after the flood than he was prior to the flood. So why does man deserve to be preserved? We already know that man does not deserve to be preserved. So what was the purpose in God preserving man? Think about this. Is all that we are to learn from the flood narrative from the judgment of flood, is, is, is all that we are to learn from that judgment that God is just. Is that all we are to gather from the judgment of God by water? Is all that we are to gather or learn from the flood judgment that God is merciful? That God will be merciful upon those whom he will be merciful to. That God will save those who he chooses, chooses to save. Is that... Is that all we are to learn from the judgment? Are we only to learn that God is just, that he will judge the wicked? Or are we only to learn, or or end, are we also only to learn that God is merciful, that he will be merciful to people? Is, is that all we are to learn? Keep those questions, important questions, in the back of your mind as we journey through the ninth chapter of the book of Genesis. I have four points for you this morning. The third point, just a heads up, the third point will have a number of subpoints. Okay? Third point will have a number of subpoints. I have four points for you this morning. Number one, echoes of the beginning. Echoes of the beginning. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1 through 3. 
And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all fish of the sea into your hand. They are delivered. Every moving thing that moves shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. We, we have named this point or I've named this point echoes of the beginning. Why? Simply because Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is bringing something very familiar to our attention. Does the language of Genesis chapter 9, verse 1 through 3, listen to this, does it sound familiar? If it does sound familiar, what is it reminding you of? How is it familiar? Where where is the, where is, is the similar language that you are seeing? Where is it found? Someone said the garden. Where is it found? Genesis chapter 1. In in Genesis chapter 1, we are seeing the same type of language in the creation narrative as we are seeing now here in Genesis chapter 9. As we've said in times past, we, we cannot disconnect all that has been said up until this point as if it is not related to what God, through Moses, is communicating to us here in the ninth chapter. Does that make sense? So as we are progressing through the book of Genesis, we can't say, let's forget about chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. Because they are connected to what is happening here in the ninth chapter. It was only eight chapters ago that we read the very familiar, similar language in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. Let's look there. God blessed them. You see that? God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So then, if we're seeing, listen, brothers and sisters, if we're seeing similar language, what is God, through his servant Moses, trying to communicate to us? What's being communicated? The first chapter is what? Creation 1.0, if you will. It's, it's the creation, initial creation. So if creation chapter 1 is, is creation 1.0, and now we are coming to a, a world that has been, if you remember, decreated, remember that? And now recreated, God is saying to us, this in essence is creation 2.0. If, if the language of chapter 1 is 1.0, then God is saying this is a new creation. It is creation 2.0. But this creation was not better than the first creation. Does that make sense? This creation, if this is a new creation, it's not better than or anything really like the first creation. It's nothing like the original. Why? Because man is not being returned to paradise. Right? God is not taking man and putting him back in Eden and saying, let's try this all over again. God is not returning man to the state of innocence or moral integrity that he was created in. Man is no longer sinless. Man is no longer a, a sinless moral creature. He is a sinful creature. The Bible declares, or God declares about man prior to the judgment waters, 
Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his hearts, that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. That was before the flood. What does God say about man after the flood? Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21. The intention of man's heart is evil from youth. Man is not returned to the moral integrity of soul in which he was created. Man is still a sinner. But nevertheless, this is still presented to us as a new creation. And we are able to come to these conclusions because Scripture is intentionally, not unintentionally, Scripture is intentionally using the same language that was used in the initial creation. Scripture is doing this. Scripture is trying to say, pay attention, uh, big flashing lights, something is happening here, don't miss this. It's drawing, it's intending to draw our, our eyes to the purposeful similarities. In the creation account, the Lord is constructing the heavens and the earth and all that dwell within. In the creation account, God blessed man with authority. Listen to that. God blessed man with what? Authority. To do what? To be fruitful. To multiply. To fill the earth. In the creation account, God has blessed man with authority over all creation. He hands it over to man. Creation, as it was created, would not resist man. As man obeyed his creator in expanding the Garden of Eden. This was the initial creation. In building a garden temple. This was man's commission. Build the garden temple. Fill the world. Make the world a dwelling place wherein all men worship God. And where God would dwell with man in perfect fellowship and communion. Man, in the initial creation, was to build. He was to expand. He was to bring creation ultimately to what? consummation that's the commission of man initially bring the world to consummation bring the world to completion the earth and all of creation would not resist man in his efforts to fulfill the great commission of god does that make sense the initial creation was there to assist man the initial creation was there to submit to man as man sought to fulfill the great commission of God. All of creation was at man's disposal. This is the beginning. And now, we come to the world post-flood. To the world after the flood. We find the same language, but the conditions have changed. We find the same language, but the conditions have now changed. God blesses man. Just as God blessed man in the beginning. But listen, brothers and sisters... It's not a blessing of spiritual regeneration. God is not blessing them and saying, now you're saved. Amen. He's blessing man with the same blessing that man had in the beginning, which is what? You are going to be fruitful and multiply. You are given the same blessing as was given in the beginning, but it's a temp temporal blessing. Why? Because you will be temporal residents on the earth. Does that make sense? So then what's the blessing? Just as the blessing and the outworkings of that blessing were spelled out in Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. God has blessed you with the authority to do so. 
So also in the ninth chapter, God has blessed man and the outworkings of that blessing are described. What are they? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God is giving you the authority and the right to do so. God has blessed man with the right to be fruitful and multiply. And this is not just repopulate the earth. Are you with me? Being fruitful and multiplying is not have a bunch of babies. Oh, let me let me say that uh, another way. It's not only have a bunch of babies, right? Fruitful and multiply does involve reproducing, but it's not solely a commission of reproduction. What is man to be fruitful, multiply, subdue, and fill? How? Man's to build. Man, by nature, is a builder. What was man to build? Culture. Now, you're going to have to, we're going to distinguish these two in a moment. Man is to build culture. Man is to build cities. Man was to expand nations. This is a common blessing or a common commission to all mankind. Are you with me? At this point... We need to make something clear. God is not reissuing the same commission that was given to man in the beginning. What was the commission or covenant that God made with man in the beginning? Expand the Garden of Eden. Make the earth a temple to worship God. That commission fell under a specific covenant. Are you with me? God makes a covenant with a specific people and says, here's your calling. Now we come to the ninth chapter. And it's a completely different covenant with similarities. To Adam, God establishes a covenant of works. The covenant between Adam and God, was it kept or was it broken? Did Adam keep the covenant of works or did Adam break the covenant of works? Let's try this again. Did Adam sin against God? Okay, there we go. Adam broke the covenant of works. Right? God said, do this and you will live. Don't do this and you will die. What did Adam do? He disobeyed. He broke covenant with God. God is not commanding Noah and his sons to expand the garden temple. Are you with me? Not like he did with Noah. Or not, not, not like he did with Adam. This is not a covenant that God was making. That's not the covenant that God was making with Noah. And we'll discuss more about the Noahic covenant in just a moment. But rather, God is giving a command that is applicable to every creature made in the image of God. What is that? Be fruitful. All people. Multiply. All people. Build culture. All people. Commands humans to reproduce, raise up structured societies. Humans collectively build up societies. In spite of opposition, we are to be cultural workers. We are to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and master it. And what we see in the world, with nations progressing, with cultures progressing, is exactly what God ordained for all men. God is not saying... To Noah, expand the garden. Why? Because there is no garden. 
God is not saying expand Eden. Why? Because there is no more Eden. Eden's gone. And that covenant was broken. The covenant of works no longer works. So God is now establishing a different covenant through Noah that is applicable to all peoples. From the dawn of time, man has progressed in building, multiplying, raising up societies, and raising up culture, just the way God deemed for all men to do. This is different than what Adam and Eve were called to do. It is. They were called to expand Eden, bring the world to consummation. They were called to create a world where the world worships God. This is not that covenant. Again, we are no longer in Eden. The covenant of works was broken in Adam. That which God commanded through Noah is to build culture, not expand the garden. And we, again, as collective, as collective culture, we build society. We are not building a garden temple in this covenant. Does that make sense? Covenants are distinct. In this covenant, God is commanding all men to do this. Now, what's the point of that? What's the point of that? Wouldn't God want everyone to praise him and to worship him? Yes, he would. And God has, has written that on our hearts. He's already commanded that. And we are not saying that Jesus did not commission his disciples to go and make disciples. But we are talking about distinctions in covenants. And this covenant is distinct in that God commands all creatures to be fruitful, to be to multiply, to build culture and community. As he continues, verse 2, The fear of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. In the beginning... Uh, before the fall, the animals would not resist or fight against man as he sought to obey the command of God. They were under man's subjection and under man's submission. They were to, they were to be used by Adam to aid him in his quest to fulfill the great commission of God. However, after the fall, all of creation would now resist man. Rather than aid man in his work as, as was done prior to the fall, creation would now resist man because man had broken covenant with God. Creation had fallen. Now, the Lord does not bring creation back under the same submission as it was prior to the fall, but rather God promises that you have authority over them. But it will be accomplished through fear. Creation is at your disposal. But the only way that you will be able to rule over creation is through fear and dread. Man would now have to work in order to bring creation under submission. If man wanted to use creation for his good and for his own purposes, man would have to dominate creation through fear and force. Man must be fruitful and multiply. He must use creation to accomplish that goal. But he will only be able to accomplish that goal or utilize creation through fear and force. It is through fear and force that creation will now submit to man. 
This is a, a, a similar commission under different conditions. Does that make sense? So God is making similar promises or similar commissions. But the conditions are completely different now. At every turn, creation will resist man. In Genesis chapter 1, the Lord God said concerning food, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. And every tree with its seed in with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. It was believed that prior to the fall, man survived primarily on a fruit and vegetable diet. And then after the fall, man began to eat meat. And now in the ninth chapter, the Lord God says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Later, the Lord God would place dietary restrictions on Israel. And, and to be frank with you, this passage no longer applies to us. Simply because in the book of Acts, the Lord tells Peter to get up and eat. And Peter says, I, I've never eaten anything unclean. And, and the Lord says to Peter, don't call what I have created unclean. Get up and eat. Basically, we are free to eat anything that we like. All foods are acceptable for consumption. Point number two, sanctity of life, sanctity of life. Uh, let me just say real quick, unless you have health problems, you should be careful about, I'll just use that as a caveat. If you have health issues, then you should be careful about what you eat. Uh, sa- number two, sanctity of life, verse nine or verse four, chapter nine, but you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood and for your lifeblood i will require it and from man from this fellow man i will require a reckoning for the life of man whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for god made man in his own image and you be fruitful and multiply increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it the lord god makes a command That is not specific to Noah and his sons, but again is specific or applicable to all peoples. All peoples are to be governed by this command. And what is the command? The command is to protect life. To treat life, all life, all human life as being sacred. Why must we treat all human life? As sacred, verse 6, for God made man in his own image. The Lord God commands that if a man is to take the life of another man, that he shall be, his life shall be taken because he has destroyed the life of an image bearer of God. He's shown no regard for the one who is made in God's image. This, brothers and sisters, is the basis for capital punishment. For capital punishment. That which we practice and uphold in this country and in other countries around the world finds its roots in this command from Scripture. All nations are to be governed by the acknowledgement of life as being sacred. All nations. This is not specific to Noah. Again, this is for all peoples. They are to acknowledge and uphold the rights of every man made in the image of God. Man is to be fruitful and multiply. We've discussed that this is not solely reproduction, but at the same time, reproduction is at the heart of this command. And what would be the antithesis 
of being fruitful and multiplying. Murder. Murder would be the antithesis. Killing others. That opposes this command from God when we murder. And you should probably know where I'm going. Governments instituted by God must uphold this command to preserve life. And by preserving life, we preserve the family. It is our collective and social responsibility to protect and preserve life. It is our collective and social responsibility to oppose any force that would attempt to destroy life. To destroy family. Because destroying life destroys family. To to legalize the murder of those created in the image of God is against the command of God for all peoples. And we must lift our voices collectively and oppose government-funded, government-led, and government-protected status, legal status of abortion. Is there anything more blatantly opposed to the command of God to protecting life than killing the, 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 the womb, the babies of innocent, uh, the mother, the babies of, of mothers, of, of people every single day, daily? Is there anything more opposed to the command of God than abortion? Is there anything more wicked than killing our children and then protecting the ones who kill them? This is absolute rebellion against God. And our country is leading the way. Our country is teaching other countries like Ireland how to get away with murder. How to get away with murder. As we approach the Noahic Covenant, we are approaching issues that are, that are true and relevant for all mankind. For all mankind. Imagine mothers who have been trying for five years to have a baby. While others, protected by the government, are killing their children on a daily basis. It is absolute rebellion against God. These issues touch every human being and we must not ignore them as if they were ancient documents that no longer apply to us. The Noahic covenant applies to us even here today. This is an issue that is applicable to all of us. Moving on, number three. The establishment or the establishing of the covenant. Verse six. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth that is with you, as many as come out of the ark, for it is for every beast of the earth. This is the first time that we have seen the word covenant. We've seen implications of the covenant in Genesis chapter 2 with God and Adam. And now for the very first time, we are seeing the explicit word covenant. We're going to do some very basic defining of terms that may be review for some people and may be new information for others. So let's begin with a basic. This is our point three, and I'm going to give you subpoints and letters. So point three A, what is a covenant? What is a covenant? This is A, okay? A covenant is a divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship. I'll say that again. A covenant is a divinely sanctioned 
commitment or relationship. In times past, we've had uh, our notes up here. I was thinking about doing that. I just didn't. What is a covenant? A covenant is a divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship. From that definition, you may have noticed some intentional language. Here's 3B. Here's your second subpoint, 3B. A covenant is a divinely in, is divinely imposed by God. 3B. A covenant is is divinely imposed by God. So, point 1, a covenant is a divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship. Point 2, a covenant is divinely imposed by God. Right? It's divinely sanctioned by God. It's a divine commitment from God, meaning God is the one who initiates this covenant. God initiates it. God, the eternal one, creates a man in his own image and sanctions these commitments or relationships with man. These covenants come from God to man. They are not from man to God. They are covenants that are not up for negotiation. They have been imposed by God, right? God does not ask for our permission when establishing a covenant. God does not present a contract and say, read this over, take it to your lawyers, see what they say, get back to me. God is not making an offer and then asking us to consider it. They are imposed by God to the creature man. They are imposed by God. Again, God does not ask for permission. Uh, And this is consistent with scripture. You did not choose me, I chose you. It is the Lord's covenant. Amen. Now, even though covenants are divinely imposed, they are always, this is very important, they are always meant for the improvement of man's state. Even though covenants are divinely imposed by God, they are always meant for the improvement upon man's state of being. The divinely imposed covenants are never meant for man's ill will. They're never meant to hurt, harm man. They are always meant to improve man's state of being. Man is not improving God's state of being. Amen. God is improving man's state of being. Man is not improving God's state of being. God is improving man's state of being. 3C. Types of covenants. Types of covenants. There are basically two types of covenants. If you if you want to do some shorthand notes, covenant of works, covenant of grace. Right? Covenant of works is a covenant of obedience. Relationships that function through man's compliance with God's commands. They are, you do this and you will receive that. You obey and you will be rewarded. This is the covenant of works. The other type of covenant is that which does not require your work at all. It's a covenant of grace. We receive benefits sovereignly from God that are promised by the doing, dying, and rising of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is grace. You do no work. God does the work. You only receive. That's a covenant of grace. It is that which is unearned and undeserved. So there is a covenant of works, or you could call it a covenant of obedience. And there is a covenant of grace. 
in which you receive a reward, a promised reward. Now, the Noahic covenant is unique. Take notes. The Noahic covenant is unique because it's not a covenant of works and it's not the covenant of grace. And we'll talk about the uniqueness of the covenant, Noahic covenant in just a moment. Uh, 3D. Okay, so we we've gone A, B, C and now D. The purpose of divine covenants. The purpose of divine covenants. Divine covenants are the means through which God reveals himself. They are the means through which God reveals himself, his kindness, his love, his goodness, his creation, all of these things. They are simply God's way of interacting or relating to man for the purpose of communion and fellowship with man for man's benefit. So God condescends to man. And the way that God condescends to man is through covenant. You remember the word condescends, right? God, God brings himself down in order to commune and fellowship with man. And the way he does that, the means through which he does that is covenants. As God interacts with man, man benefits, is the benefactor of communion that he gains with God. God is not interacting with man for the good of God. We've said this already. God is interacting, communicating with man for the betterment of man. God does not need anything. Pastor Zay was talking about that this morning. God is us say. Right. He is self-sufficient. He is not in need of anyone or anything. God is complete and whole in and of himself. He is all that he is all at once. He's neither the receiver nor the benefactor of anyone or anything. Nehemiah Cox said, God has always dealt with the children of men by way of covenant. Think about this. All worship and obedience that God has required and accepted from the children of men has been accepted on the terms of covenant. The, the ability, uh, our moral ability or capacity to walk before God that has been given to us, worked in us, is in accordance with our covenant relationship with God. Does that make sense? Meaning this, all men fall under a covenant when they are born. What is the covenant they are born under? Covenant works. Why? Because they're born in Adam. They are born under a requirement that God required of Adam, which was what? Keep the law. Keep his commands. Could anyone keep the covenant of works? No. We are born under the law, just as Jesus was born under the law, right? We are born under the commandments. Can we keep the law? We cannot. Adam failed, we failed. When Adam failed, we all failed. We are all born under the law, born under the requirements and failures of the covenant, right? We failed. Right when we are born, we failed. This is the way that all men relate to God when they are born. As failing sinners or or sinners who have failed. But God has provided another means of escaping his judgment. It is the covenant of grace that has been provided for us in the doing, dying and rising of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has completed the covenant of redemption. All men fall into one of these two covenants. 
you are either in Adam, which you are born in, the covenant of works, or you are by grace in the covenant of grace. And you are the benefactor of the covenant of redemption. And that is by faith. All men also live under another covenant. It's a common covenant. It's the no way covenant. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. So 3F. Am I doing my alphabet letters right? A, B, C, D, E, E. Oh, I skipped one. 3E. 3E, not 3F, 3E. Covenants contain sacramental signs pointing to the agreement. A, B, C, D, E. Okay, now y'all looking at me like, you got it wrong still. Okay, making sure. A, B, C, D, E. Covenants contain sacramental signs pointing to the agreement, pointing to the covenant, right? When we consider the covenants that God has made with man, they are always accompanied by, here's the word, sacramental signs. Sacramental signs. What is a sacramental sign? It is simply a sign that points to the covenant. A sign that points to the covenant. When we consider the Adamic covenant, we see that there were sacramental signs pointing to the covenant that God made with man. What were they? What were the two sacramental signs? Someone said it. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Those were the sacramental signs, right? The tree of knowledge pointed to what? To the death promised if you disobey. The tree of life pointed to what? The reward promised if you obey. These are sacramental signs pointing to the covenant that God made with man. When we see the Abrahamic covenant, what was the covenant sign or the sacramental sign that God made with Abraham? Say it. Circumcision. That was the sacramental sign. The Mosaic sign. The sign of the the Mosaic covenant was what? The Sabbath. God has always used sacramental signs or signs pointing to the covenants that God has made with man. They are reminders. They are visible reminders of promises or covenants that God has made with his people. F. Three F. God's covenants have always had representative or federal heads. God's covenants have always had representative slash covenant heads, federal heads. Right? I'll say that one more time. God's covenants have always had a representative federal head or covenant head. What is that? It is one who stands on behalf of the whole. God makes his covenant with Adam for a people. God makes his covenant with Noah, through Noah, for a people. And we can use all those going on. Moses, David, and Christ. They are the federal covenant heads, representatives of those covenants. When God covenanted with Adam, Adam stood on behalf of the entire human race. Therefore, his rising would be our rising. And his falling would be our falling. Or as we've said before, as Adam goes, so goes the world. He was our representative. This is why the scriptures say when Adam fell, we all fell. Or in Adam, all die. But thanks God, thanks be to God, that is not where the scriptures end. They also testify to Christ. 
All who are in Christ shall live. If Christ is raised, we shall be raised with him. Why? Because Christ is a representative head. He is a federal covenant head for a particular people. Just as Adam represented a people, so Christ represented a people. So goes Christ, so goes all whom he represents. We know about representation. We have mayors, governors, and presidents who represent a people. Right? We may not like our representatives, but they nevertheless represent us. This is the way that it has pleased the Lord God in all of his dealings with man. It has pleased the Lord to deal with man by way of covenant through federal heads. Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, Christ, Moses. They were all federal heads. When one understands the covenants, when, when one misunderstands the covenants, Cox says, it, it, it produces the spring of most mistakes and corruptions of doctrine and practice of most of matters of religion. Meaning this, if you get covenants wrong, you're going to get a whole bunch of stuff wrong. Okay, that is a, a general, very, very brief fly through through covenants, right? Some of the basic things you need to know as we move into our fourth and final point, the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant, verse 11. Matter of fact, uh, I, well, I'll read it to you. Verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, listen, as we're reading these verses, pay attention to some of the things that we have said that are present in a covenant. Okay? So he has already said, I establish my covenant with you. He's the federal head. Going, okay, going on, verse 12. And God said, this is the what? Class, this is the sign. Thank you very much. The sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and you and all flesh on the earth. Now, with all the foundational... uh, uh, definitions of covenant established we now consider the noahic covenant the lord god establishes a covenantal agreement and it is directed toward who noah and who else all flesh noah is the contact he is the federal head the covenant head but it is also made with all human beings god is is promising to through noah for all peoples I've said previously that this covenant with Noah is unique. It's not a covenant of works. It's not a covenant of grace. So then how is it unique? Here's your answer. The, the way it covenant is unique in that it is a unilateral. That means from one side, sovereign promise of God that is irrespective of man's work or man's faith. Got that? Should I say that again? Okay. The way covenant is a unique is unique in that it is unilateral unilateral meaning from one side sovereign promise from god so it's one-sided from god 
that's irrespective of man's work. Doesn't matter what work you do. And it's also irrespective of man's faith. Doesn't matter what you believe. Promise from God. And what's the promise? The promise is that God will not judge the world with a universal flood as he's done in the time in times past. That's the promise. Doesn't matter what work you do or what faith you believe. God's not going to destroy the earth. That's how it's unique. Because there's a covenant of works. Do this and you will be rewarded. And there's a covenant of grace. You do you do not need to do anything where I am going to bless you. And this is a regenerational blessing. Bless you with salvation. Covenant of grace is always salvation oriented, right? As all, so all creation is the benefactor of this promise. It's not a covenant of works because man cannot work for this covenant. It's not a covenant of grace because God's not promising salvation. You with me? The fulfillment of this promise is not dependent upon whether or not we obey the law or whether or not we place our faith in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a promise of unilateral sovereign disposition. It is a promise that, that is one-sided It is not do this. It is I am going to do this no matter what you do. The Noahic covenant is based upon God's faithfulness alone. The Noahic covenant is not a promise of eternal salvation or eternal life. There's nothing promised in the arena of spiritual regeneration. It is a covenantal promise of common preservation. What's the Noahic covenant? It's a promise of common preservation upon all creation. Some might say common grace. I prefer, I prefer the term common preservation because that's exactly what God is promising to preserve. God will preserve the earth and keep it from being destroyed by way of flood as it was done in the days of Noah. If someone wants to say common grace, I'm not going to fight you over that. It's not going to be a hill that we die on. Uh, I understand what you mean by that. As long as we're understanding that God is not promising uh, regeneration or salvation here. He's calm. He's promising preservation. The covenant is a covenant really of mercy. It's a covenant that God is going to be merciful. Now listen to this in giving peace to the earth. What kind of peace? He's going to withhold his judgment. That's peace. He's going to withhold judgment that creation does deserve. John Calvin said, if creation, we creatures were given what we, what we deserve, there would be a flood every single day. So God is withholding that rightful judgment. And man is the benefactor. All men. Now listen to this. All men are the benefactor of this covenant. It doesn't benefit, benefit God. Just like all the other covenants. It was a display of the mercy of God. Although Noah is the federal head of this covenant, it's really made with all creation. In verse 9, I will establish my covenant with you, your offspring, which would be all of us, every living creature, birds, livestock, every beast. Verse 11, I will establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. All peoples preserved by God. All peoples being kept from the judgment of God for a period of time. Listen, what is the sign of the covenant? Covenants contain signs. What's the sign? Verse 12. This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is made between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. 
and the water shall never again come and destroy all flesh. When the bow, the sign of the covenant is the bow, is in the cloud, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature that is of, of creature of the flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh on the earth. Sacramental sign, visible sign. God has designated, this is a very important word, God has designated the bow as the sign of the covenant. The rainbow. Now, this is important. As we've discussed in times past with the serpent, just as the serpent did not lose its arms and its legs after the fall, but rather it was an existing creature that took on a new significance, so also the rainbow was not a new creation, but it took on a new significance. How do we know that? How do rainbows appear? They appear when light shines through water. It's reflecting, right? It's reflecting the colors that are within that water and the sun. It was not a new phenomenon. It was an existing reality that God is using now for a new significance. Does that make sense? There's no word for rainbow in the Hebrew. There's only the word bow. Like a war bow. God chose a symbol of war, a bow and arrow, to be used as a symbol of peace. The bow in the sky is not a threat to humanity, but rather it is a symbol of peace to humanity and to creation. God will, as it were, lay down his bow that was pointed at the earth, downward toward man, And now where is the bow pointing? Upward toward God. There is is an arch in the bow. And that which is arched is always pointed toward its target. God is making a promise with himself. That he will never destroy the earth. And if he does, the bow is pointed toward him lest he break his promise. God is saying, I will put myself in this covenant that if I break my covenant, I will be destroyed. The bow is not pointed toward earth. It is pointed toward God. And isn't it unique or, or ironic that there are countries like Peru, Bolivia, Ecuador, and others that use the rainbow as their symbol on their flag? Isn't it ironic that the homosexual community uses the rainbow as their symbol and flag. Isn't it ironic that God has promised not to destroy creation until the appointed time, and these openly sinful communities, especially the homosexual community, use the flag as a reminder, as as, as a reminder of the promise of God that they will not be destroyed. Unknowingly, unwittingly, without even realizing, they are using a symbol that is absolutely true. Yes, you will not be destroyed. Not yet. Knowingly or unknowingly, they are using the very symbol of God's patience toward the wicked. And listen, as much as we don't like it, they have every right to use it. Why? Because God did make that promise. God has made that promise. Okay, you won't be destroyed. Not yet. Wave it as high and as hard as you can. Because you are right. 
God will not destroy the wicked by flood, but the wicked will be judged. You can wave that flag all you want. Fire is coming. Judgment is coming. Until then, the rainbow is a covenant sign that God will preserve the earth. And we must praise God for the sign that he's given us each time the sun breaks through the clouds after a rain. I pray that after the next rain, whenever it comes, that you will go out and drive maybe to a place that is clear and open. And just praise God for the fact that he is commonly preserving all mankind until all of his elect come in. That's why we're being preserved. Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. God may judge nations. There may be floods isolated here and there, but God will not judge the world as he has done in times past. Not until all of his promises are fulfilled. So then let's return to the first question that we asked in the beginning and we'll conclude. Why did God promise to preserve the earth even though man was as sinfully wicked as he was prior to the flood? Why? What would cause God to make a covenant of, pre- of, of preservation, covenant promise of preservation? The only thing that I can think of that would cause God to make a promise of preservation would be a previous promise. The only reason why God would say, I will preserve you, is because he's made a previous promise of saving you. There must be a promise already in place that would cause God to preserve men, and there is. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It is the promise of the covenant of grace. It is the promise of of the coming of the skull-crushing seed of the woman. The, The promise that one would come and destroy the works of Satan that causes God to make this promise of preservation. God has a plan of reclamation. God has a, a, a method whereby he will reclaim nature, human nature, repair human nature, and bring it to glory. It's the gospel. Was God's plan of reclamation revealed uh, after the Noahic covenant, or was it already in place before the Noahic covenant? We learn that Noah was declared righteous. What was the basis of Noah's righteousness? The basis of Noah's righteousness was... Noah placed his faith in the skull-crushing seed of the woman who would come and bring rest to a people. That the seed would come, destroy the works of of Satan, and God gave Noah the grace to believe this. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Noahic covenant is not the covenant of grace, but it helps to push forward the covenant of grace. It's not the covenant of grace, but it helps to push forward the promises and purposes of God. How? Reproduction, growth are the events whereby the seed of the woman will be born. This is not the covenant of grace, but it makes way for the covenant of grace because through reproduction, through the building up, the seed of the woman will be born. It makes a way so that Christ can fulfill the covenant of redemption that he made with the Father before the foundation of the world. God has promised to send the skull-crushing seed of the woman. And at that time, Noah's history, in Noah's history, the Messiah had not yet come, but God would fulfill his promise. How? He would preserve the seed. That's the covenant promise. Preserve humanity. And in preserving humanity, God preserves the seed. He preserves the righteous line. And don't lose sight of that. 
as you're studying through the scriptures, don't lose sight of the seed. As Pastor Zay preached last week, it's the scope of scripture. Scripture is, is focused on Christ. We must not be distracted. The gospel is the focus. We, we must, listen, do you know, we, we would have no scriptures without the gospel. We would have, there would be no need for the scriptures without the gospel. You ever heard that before? There would be no need for the scriptures. We have the law of God written on our hearts. The scriptures are revealing to us what? Christ. They're pointing us forward to who? Christ. Genesis, and that's why it starts so early. Genesis, maybe even earlier than that. Genesis 3.15 of Christ. We, we could go into the let us make man in our own image. We could go into that pointing to Christ. But 3.15 is the promise of the gospel. And the scriptures are constantly telling you, don't lose sight of the gospel. Don't lose sight of the seed. Don't lose track of what we're doing here. We're going in these different directions, but I'm going to bring you back around to Abram. Abram is going to have a promise of a seed to come, but don't lose sight of this because it doesn't end with Abram. He's not the seed. Don't lose sight of this. And it takes you as you're, you're following Isaac and Jacob, and then as you're following Joseph, and then as you're following Moses, what is scripture doing for you? It's saying, follow this seed. Follow this seed. He's coming. He's coming. And then John says in John 129, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Scripture says, and there he is. And there he is. We've been looking for him, and there he is. Just as the scriptures promised that he would come, he came. Don't lose sight of that. And just as the scriptures are promising he will return, he will return. Don't lose sight of that. That's the point of this. That's the point of this. They're pointing forward to Christ who would appear and destroy the works of Satan, who would live, die, and rise for our justification. So also the scriptures are pointing forward, forward to the one who will return and, and complete all things, who will bring all creation to consummation, and in that bring many sons to glory. We, God will fulfill his promise just as he's done in times past. So what can you take from the Noahic covenant? You're in this covenant. You're in this Noahic covenant. It applies to you. God will preserve the earth. Why is God preserving the earth now? So that his sheep will come in before his son returns. Why are we being preserved? Why is there not another flood destroying us all? Why has fire not yet come? Because his children are still coming. His sheep are still coming in. And there will be a day when our Lord breaks through the clouds with the sound of trumpet and all things will be made anew. And that which we will celebrate tonight at the Lord's Supper, we will celebrate with him face to face at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The earth will endure. God will preserve this earth until the return of his son. No matter if there is famine, so-called global warming. You may live as we do in one of the worst areas of air pollution in this entire world, as they say. But the world will endure. The sun will rise. The moon will shine. Until the sound of the trumpets and the appearing 
of our glorious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who will bring all things to completion. Let us pray.